podcast is going to be on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and that is called Death to Pimping, Long Live Artful Questioning. And this is a, originally a grand rounds that I did for our Department of Internal Medicine here at UC Davis School of Medicine. I have trimmed it down quite a bit by about 30 minutes in order to make it a more user-friendly podcast. I tend to see podcasts as being ideally a length of about 30 to 35 minutes tops, or I feel like I lose my podcast listener's attention span. For that, I should tell you that the music you just heard that was coming into this podcast is sung by Thea Gilmore, and that is Bad Moon Rising, which you'll recognize probably as a tune that was originally created and performed by Creedence Clearwater Revival quite a while back but I thought that version was appropriate for all that's going on across the planet, including wildfires, pandemics, and other uh, such bad situation things like a bad moon rising. In any case, I'm going to go ahead and get uh, started here with this podcast, Death to Pimping, Long Live Artful Questioning. Uh, And I should also add, before I get started, that I'm hoping to do a follow-up podcast with Dr. James Nixon from the University of Minnesota, which will be more specifically addressing student mistreatment, what is mistreatment and what is not mistreatment, as well as a further discussion uh, and interview with him about how he uh, carries out artful questioning. So the roadmap for this talk is that we're going to talk about what is pimping. We're going to talk about origins and controversies about the word pimping, the literature around the word pimping, and then I'm going to complete this podcast by providing you with 10 tips for crafting artful questions in the medical education environment. And I hope you get something, at least a couple things, out of this podcast. So when we use the word pimping, there's a few things that come to mind. If you're talking about the adjective, uh, the adjective pimping uh, means petty, insignificant, paltry, measly, trifling, definitely not a very positive connotation in the adjective of the word pimping. If you go with the verb for pimping, uh, currently the Urban Dictionary uh, defines it as making something cool or better. So, for example, if I were to say to you, yeah, I was totally pimping up my Facebook profile today, or I was totally pimping up my oral presentation in order to impress my team on the wards, that would be the current Urban Dictionary verb use of the word pimping. 
However, then there's the very negative connotation of the word pimping, which is essentially selling others for the purposes of sex. Uh, for example, there's a famous headline on a newspaper somewhere in the United States, high school football coach arrested for pimping out teenage girls. So it's sort of the most negative uh, connotation of the word that you could imagine uh, when it comes to sex uh, and uh, things around sex. And so for better or for worse, that meaning of the word has somewhat carried over into the medical education environment as well in a very negative way. So the origins of the word pimping as it pertains to medical education are rather interesting and poorly understood. But the first reference to pimping in the global medical literature is that in 1628, Dr. William Harvey, who you'll recall was the physician who figured out the circulatory system, said, he, uh, you know, he had a thing for the circulatory system. It was his favorite interest in the universe. Uh, and he felt that students had little interest in the circulation of the blood and quote unquote said that he longed to see them pimped, those you know, end quotes, those students he's referring to. And in that context, uh, it's fairly negative connotation of the word pimped. In other words, somehow see those students humiliated or punished um, for their lack of interest in his favorite topic, namely circulation. In uh, 1889, uh, Koch, the guy who came up with Koch's postulates, referred to a collection of Pumpfrage that he had, and uh, roughly translated that as pump questions. No, I didn't say pimp questions, I said pump questions. So the idea there is that there are many who believe, and this is not totally 100% crystal clear, that the etiology of the word pimp comes from pomp fraga, which is not meant uh, pimping as in the sexual connotation or otherwise, but actually comes from those old fashioned wells where people would pump the lever in order to bring water up out of the ground. and. I found one of these in Switzerland a couple of years ago when we were there on vacation and actually I have a nice photo of it that I'll try and put on the SoundCloud site for this podcast. But the idea is that you're pumping others for their knowledge about a topic and the idea is to see what's going to come out in the way of knowledge and that you can then determine what they don't know and what they do know in order to uh, have them utilize the knowledge that they have or if they don't know something that you can actually figure out what their deficits are and teach them what they don't know. So unfortunately this pumping the well ended up transitioning to pimping as time went on in the English language and the medical education culture. In the United States, the first reference that we see to the term pimping was when Abraham Flexner was describing rounding with uh, Dr. William Osler at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And uh, in his diary, he wrote, rounded with Osler today, riddles house officers with questions like a Gatling gun. Welsh says students call it pimping, delightful. And that's what uh, Flexner had to say about it. And for those of you that know about William Osler, uh, chances are because he was such a highly respected and regarded 
bedside educator and uh, whether it was in the lecture hall or at the bedside, in fact, he was a great teacher. It's hard to imagine him using pimping in the context of punishing his learners or humiliating them or reinforcing the hierarchy of medical education. It's possible. We don't really have clarification on why Flexner enjoyed watching Dr. Osler pimp his learners in that way that was so delightful. But I think best guess is that in this connotation, it was seen as an effective way to, to do medical education. Then, of course, there's a commentary that's quite famous that appeared in JAMA in 1989, and this was by Dr. Brancati at the University of Pittsburgh. And this was considered a completely tongue-in-cheek look at the art of pimping, and it's called The Art of Pimping. But in this article uh, that is so tongue-in-cheek, so satirical, that it's uh, you really can't miss the satirical aspects of it, he actually said, pimp questions should come in rapid succession and should be essentially unanswerable. And then he goes on to group those pimp questions into five different categories. The first group is arcane points of history. And these are facts that are not taught in medical school and are irrelevant to patient care, which are perfect for pimping. For example, who performed the first lumbar puncture or how was syphilis named? The second type category of pimp questions that he lists are teleology and metaphysics. And these, he says, are questions that lie outside the realm of conventional scientific inquiry and have traditionally been addressed only by medieval philosophers and the editors of the National Enquirer. For example, and I, I love this example, and I've actually used it recently on rounds just for, for fun. <laughs> uh, for instance, why are some organs paired and some organs are not paired? Think about that. The third category is exceedingly broad questions. For example, what role do prostaglandins play in homeostasis? Uh, and these are the questions you throw at someone in the last four or five minutes of attending rounds while you're on a crowded and noisy stairwell, basically to make the question more difficult. And then the category of eponyms. We all know about the questioning of uh, what is an eponym and uh, uh, that those can be extremely difficult to answer sometimes, but these questions are favored by many old-timers, Brancati writes, who have assiduously avoided learning any new developments in medicine since the germ theory. For instance, what does one flu find, where does one find the semilunar space of Traub, or whose name is given to the dancing uvula of aortic regurgitation, which sometimes my students know the answer to that, but that's a whole other topic. Maybe I shouldn't be asking those eponyms to begin with. And then the fifth category is technical points of laboratory research. And these would be uh, questions such as, uh, what base sequence does the restriction endonuclease echo R1 recognize? So you get the general drift, asking extremely difficult, not necessarily relevant questions on rounds is the very definition of pimping as Brancati so satirically describes it in his article, The Art of Pimping, published in 1989 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So medical pimping is understood by the public, and I think this is an important thing to consider. The public has a very negative view of pimping and you think of Dr. House and other television shows that you've seen. And so this context of pimping is often referred to as a sport aimed at reinforcing the position of power 
of the teacher as a hierarchical exercise. Then there's the term malignant pimping, and this is identified by students and others as situations in which the teacher was exerting hierarchical power, asking questions which were outside the scope for the learner, was buffering the ego of the teacher, or was simply humiliating the students by exposing deficiencies in knowledge rather than trying to create new connections. And of course, if you have malignant pimping, you probably also have to have benign pimping. So how do these two terms contrast? Well, the interesting thing is that if you have a negative view of the word pimping and the principle of pimping in the medical education environment, there are those that think the term benign pimping is an oxymoron. In other words, that the two words contradict one another because you can't have benign pimping since pimping is not benign. And then malignant pimping, there are those that think that this term is redundant because if pimping is a negative uh, or malevolent thing, by calling it malignant, you're repeating the word twice. Malignant pimping doesn't need malignant in front of it to convey something that's malevolent or negative. There are even books that have figured out ways to market themselves. If you go on Amazon and look up the Ultimate Manual for Physician and Medical Student Self-Defense, this is called Human Rights Violations in Medicine, A to Z Action Guide. And on the front cover, they actually list various uh, human rights violations in medicine, food and water deprivation, punishment when sick, sleep deprivation, bullying, harassment, violence, pimping, racism, sexism. And of note, pimping is listed above racism and sexism on the cover of this book. But then sort of on the contradictory positive side where books have tried or authors have tried to market their books using the word pimping, there's a book called Pocket Pimped Emergency Medicine, 1500 questions you will be asked. The will be the will is in boldface. In other words, you better know these pimp questions, or you're not going to be able to answer these questions when you're in the emergency department, trying to do as well as you can on your rotation, and therefore get a good residency. So uh, the other thing to be aware of around pimping is that. Uh, Public humiliation is the most commonly cited form of medical student mistreatment in the United States, bar none. So when you think about public humiliation, it's hard to imagine that pimping, i.e. asking difficult, impossible to answer questions in front of a large group, doesn't have a major role to play in some of this public humiliation. Now, the public humiliation could be occurring in other forms. It could be a surgeon throwing a scalpel in the OR or somebody embarrassing a student or a resident by making fun of them when they don't know how to do something. But uh, chances are that much of this public humiliation comes in the form of traditional so-called malignant pimping. There is a body of literature about the word pimp and pimping. There's an article that appeared in the American Journal of Medicine not too long back called Words Matter, Removing the Word Pimp from Medical Education Discourse. And this goes on to basically describe uh, how negative the term pimping is, you know, and how confusing it is, uh, art of pimping, bad pimping, worthwhile pimping, pimping as sport, pimper phenotype, pimping score, pimp, pimpy, and so forth. 
So they argue for just getting rid of this word in the medical education world. Another article published in Academic Medicine not too far back was a perspective article called Socrates Was Not a Pimp, Changing the Paradigm of Questioning in Medical Education. And this article didn't argue for not asking questions in the medical environment of learners, but it actually just made the argument for getting rid of the term uh, pimp and pimping and pimpy and so forth, as it's used in questioning with the intent to shame or humiliate the learner to maintain the power hierarchy in medical education. So they go on to argue that um, questioning learners can be done in a learner-centered way uh, that is supportive and not harmful to them in the sense of humiliating them or reinforcing the power structure. And then the other important thing is we're contemplating what we're trying to do with this pimping kind of concept is that Socrates himself said, I cannot teach anybody anything. I can only make them think. So this is thought to be one of the reasons he developed the Socratic method of questioning. What we do in medical education is actually a modified Socratic questioning. Socrates would tend to take the polar opposite view of something and kind of argue and question uh, the learner around that opposite view. So, you know, if the sky was blue, he'd say it's black. Explain to me why you think it's, it's blue, because I think it's black, that kind of thing. Um, modified Socratic questioning is where we're basically asking questions and not necessarily taking the opposite view in terms of uh, what we think a patient has or doesn't have in terms of a diagnosis. So I think, pause here a moment, it, there's three questions I have for you that you can consider at this point. Should we stop pimping? Second question, should we stop asking our learners questions? And thirdly, should we keep asking questions but stop calling it pimping? So those are the three questions I'd like you to consider here. The question regarding the third one, should we keep asking our learners questions, is why do we question learners? Well, the education literature, this is not just the medical education literature, but all education literature, shows that questioning fosters critical thinking. Research shows correlation between the level of questioning of learners' experience and the depth of understanding of a topic. So if you question learners around a particular situation, they're going to end up ideally having a better understanding of that topic. Questioning also invites learners to process information actively rather than just having them learn facts. You're actually encouraging them to use those facts in processing in a particular situation. So what is the medical education literature say about what students really think of pimping. So there's not a lot of big studies around this. Uh, it tends to be sort of focus groups and surveys, but I thought I'd talk briefly about a couple of those articles. One was a basic medical education research article that was in Teaching and Learning in Medicine back in 2005. And this is a pretty small study. It was called Pimping, Perspectives of Fourth-Year Medical Students. And in that article, or I should say in that study, these investigators over a two-month period had 11 fourth-year medical students at a Midwest medical school who were asked six open-ended questions focusing on pimping as understood and experienced in the clinical setting. 
So then the investigators went on to sort of individually analyze the interview data using qualitative methods to characterize students' experiences and recurring ideas and concepts. And in a nutshell, what they found, what the results were in this particular study of 11 fourth-year medical students was that all students noted the hierarchical nature of pimping, viewing it as a tool for attendings or residents to assess students' levels of knowledge. Although some students had experienced malignant pimping, humiliated by incessant questioning or questions inappropriate to their level of training, all of the students in the sample were positive about pimping and its effectiveness as a pedagogical tool. So this is really interesting. So in other words, at least in this small group of fourth year students at one medical school, so obviously a very limited study, all of them saw the value in being asked questions. Another study that appeared in the radiology literature actually looked at medical students' preferences in radiology education as it came to sort of these PowerPoint presentations where they actually were looking at uh, x-rays and CT scans and such. And what they found in this particular study of 74 students who were uh, basically asked to fill out surveys, a survey regarding the teaching techniques they experienced, what they found was really interesting. The students desired to be asked questions in a way that was constructive and not belittling, to realize their knowledge deficits, and to have daily pressure to come prepared. The respondents thought that pimping was an effective teaching tool supporting previous studies. So their conclusions in this particularly small uh, survey of fourth-year students was that combining Socratic teaching with gentle questioning by an instructor through the use of PowerPoint is a preferred method among medical students. I should add that one of the interesting things in this study was that students in general wanted to be able to volunteer to ask the questions and they didn't like to be cold called on, uh, cold calling being where you just out of the blue call on a student who may or may not be expecting to be called on. I think that this probably isn't the ideal way to use artful questioning, but we'll come back to that later. So conclusions based upon both the literature of education and student perspectives on the value of supportive questioning is do not give up on, on questioning. It's vital to learning. It's supported in the education literature. And learners definitely appreciate it when it's done supportively and is inclusive of all the learners that you're teaching. You really just have to perfect the art of asking questions that stimulate thought, learning, curiosity, engagement, and inclusivity, which I know is easier said than done. So what do I mean when I say develop the art of questioning? Well. The remainder of this podcast is going to be 10 tips for teaching with artful questioning. So I'm going to breeze through those and hopefully leave you with something that helps you, if you once you've determined that you are going to continue asking your learners questions because it, it, it stimulates independent thought and the use of factual knowledge in real-world situations, particularly in medicine. So tip one, you are not a pimper and they are not pimpees. My point here is you should stop calling it pimping. Call it questioning or asking or the art of asking or the art of questioning or call it, if you want to sound particularly sophisticated at cocktail parties, modified Socratic questioning or MSQ for short. And sometimes I do refer to it that way uh, when I'm talking with students and getting feedback 
from them about my questioning at the end of a two-week block of working with them on the wards. Tip two, level the playing field. So what do I mean by that? You want to seek permission to question. Okay, that was a very thorough presentation, Ashley. Is it okay if I ask you a few questions about this patient and your diagnosis, assessment, and plan? What's the idea here? Well, the idea here is to at least a little bit to blunt the hierarchical nature of traditional malignant pimping. By asking permission, like you're not expecting anyone is ever going to say, no, Dr. A, I'd prefer you wait until next week to ask me these questions. I don't feel completely prepared at this moment. No one's ever gonna say no to you as the faculty, the attending who's asking the questions. But the idea is at least acknowledge that there's hierarchy uh, at play here and that by seeking their permission, uh, perhaps things are gonna go a little bit smoother and be a little less intimidating. Tip three, don't react even if you're pleased with how people answer questions. The idea here is doing something that is known as normalizing error, and that's avoiding praise or avoiding showing your disappointment depending on how your questions are answered. And the idea there is that the more normal being wrong or being right is in your learning environment, the more comfortable people are going to be answering your questions. And if they're more comfortable answering your questions, they're probably gonna think more clearly and they're probably gonna get more out of your question, question asking. Tip four, I call this the, how fast does a hummingbird's heart beat? So here you wanna avoid pure recall questions unless you can tie them directly into practical lessons about patient care and thus reinforce those recall questions. But the pure, out of the blue, one-off recall questions have been shown in the education research that 80% of these types of questions are soon forgotten if there's no context for those factual questions. By the way, just as a sort of sidelight here, uh, if you ever do want to ask about the heart rate of a hummingbird, I really am fascinated by hummingbirds. Their hearts beat at about 250 beats per minute at rest, uh, and their flight speed is up to 27 miles per hour, although there are reports of hummingbirds flying next to automobiles traveling at close to 40 miles per hour. So they're fast little critters, and they have some of the most fascinating physiology. I could talk about it for 45 minutes probably, but I won't do that because we don't have that kind of time here. Tip number five, scaffold recall questions to make them relevant. So if you're going to ask a recall question, build upon it to make it relevant to patient care in front of you. For example, if you act, like to ask the question I always like to act, ask, which is, so what is the duration of action of oral furosemide, also known as by its trade name, Lasix. Uh, everyone usually chuckles when you ask this question. Most people know that it supposedly got its name Lasix from it lasts six hours. Whether that's true or urban legend, I, I really couldn't tell you. I've never really looked into it, but it's a good way to remember the duration of action. But once you've sort of tackled that recall question, let's make it clinically relevant. How do you do that? Well, how might this information be useful to your patient who skips her furosemide on Sundays because she wants to go to church, and, and again, skips her furosemide on Tuesdays because that's when her son takes her shopping? And of course, that usually triggers some recognition in our learners that they could probably do a better job of educating patients about this because if patients knew it's okay to take the furosemide after they get home from church or shopping, 
they're less likely to avoid taking it just before they go shopping in the morning or go to church in the morning, thinking that, you know, it's a Q-day medication, that they're supposed to take it in the morning, not knowing that it can be taken later in the day. And if they know it lasts for six hours, they'll know to plan their day around their furosemide dose. Another way to scaffold this question is to then go on to ask about the IV form of furosemide. What's its duration of action? And this, of course, is extremely important to know. It's actually two hours with an onset of action at five to 10 minutes, peaking at 20 to 30 minutes. But why would it be important to know that if you're seeing a patient with flash pulmonary edema in the middle of the night? And so usually the residents don't know the answer to this question. And then there's this uh, faint recognition of the fact that maybe the last 10 patients they saw in the middle of the night in flash pulmonary edema, they weren't quite totally clear on when they needed to come back and see the patient to see what their urine output was or when to decide whether to double up the dose and give it again. Extremely important and relevant to patient care, although it's a recall question. Tip six, why, what, how? Require explanation. So this tip is basically about using questions that elicit higher levels of cognitive processing. So in contrast to pure recall questions where 20% or less is retained, these types of questions, the ones that elicit higher levels of cognitive processing, result in greater than 80% retention levels of knowledge. So an extremely helpful way to do this. So what's an example of this kind of question? Well, this might be, does this patient have left heart failure, right heart failure, or both? And why do you think that? So requiring them to actually explain and connect the dots of why uh, the patient has left or right heart failure. So you want a prompt explanation, basically. You're, this is, again, where you're gonna use your why, how, and what questions. Yes, you're correct that this chest X-ray shows pulmonary edema, but what exactly causes pulmonary edema? Yes, you're correct that this patient has ascites, but why do patients with cirrhosis develop ascites? Asking these questions triggers deeper cognitive processing and leads to retention of concepts as well as new and reinforcing old knowledge. Tip seven, connect the dots. This is known in the medical education literature as requiring inference, which is a term that's just not exactly rolling off my tongue or very intuitive. So that's why I call it connecting the dots. And this is asking learners to try and predict what will happen in a given situation. So for this one, this connect the dots tip seven, I'm gonna give you an example. And this is a real case situation that I saw just a couple weeks ago with my team in the hospital. And it was that we had admitted a patient, or I should say the third year medical student and intern, had admitted a patient who had severe, severe biventricular failure. And on the morning after the patient had been admitted, when the patient was, had gotten some diuresis but was still in florid volume overload, the student did his presentation. And as he was describing his physical exam, he, he described that the patient had exophthalmos and then went on in his assessment and plan to describe a plan to rule out hyperthyroidism. You know, could this patient actually have Graves' disease? Which I thought was a great thought. You know, he was basing it on a very rational approach, and that was a finding on the physical exam, although there was nothing else going for hyperthyroidism with this patient. And as it turns out, 
there is this uh, pretty well-described phenomenon where you can get exophthalmos, stare, increase in, in intraocular pressure, and systolic propulsion of the eyeballs due to congestive heart failure. And as you can imagine, this occurs when there's very, very high right-sided heart pressures. And they actually have researched this. It's a pretty, and this is a pretty old article. I think it was in maybe American Journal of Medicine or one of the cardiology journals where they actually used an ex-ophthalmometer. I can't say that very well, which is what we usually use to measure the uh, the eyes uh, in Graves' disease, but they used it in situations where patients had severe right heart failure with exophthalmos. But the, the question, once I'd explained this to the, the third-year medical student, was, so what do you think is going to happen to this patient's exophthalmos that he clearly has, based on his exam, in a few days? And the student said, well, I guess I would predict that if we do our job and we get this patient diuresed, his exophthalmos should improve. And sure enough, five days later, as the patient was being discharged from the hospital, I turned to the third year student. I said, what's your observation about the patient's exophthalmos? And he says, yeah, I noticed that it's completely gone. So that is requiring inference. That is connecting the dots. That is looking at a patient, planning the treatment, and predicting what's gonna happen with that particular patient in a given situation. Tip number eight, pump the well. And this is just the idea of asking compare and contrast questions. What history and physical exam findings support this diagnosis, which do not support this diagnosis? And in asking these relatively simple questions about illness scripts, you're basically asking the student or the resident or the intern what they know about a particular disease. And that idea there is that you are actually, that's the, the pumpfraga, that's the pimp questions, the pump questions, um, the getting to know what that learner does not know or does not understand so that you can then teach that to them. Or they can go home and look it up if that's your preference. That's a totally fine way to go about things as well. Well, you don't know as much as I'd like you to know about this. I'd like you to go home and read about this tonight and come back and give us the answer tomorrow. Tip nine, throw a lifeline. And the idea here in throwing a lifeline is that a lot of these questions potentially can be intimidating. And again, they're coming out of that hierarchical uh, world that we all live and work in, and it's a reality of teaching in the medical environment. So what you wanna do is you wanna preface difficult questions to diminish the excess stress, and hopefully also to increase the fun factor. So you might say something like, you know, th that I always say, this is a super duper hard question. Our program director, who by the way, is a very, very smart guy and knows a ton of medicine, probably wouldn't even know the answer to this. Or this question is really a read my mind question, but just for the fun of it, let's see if you guys can read my mind. And often they go on to quote unquote read my mind and they actually are able to come up with the answer to a question, but it de-stresses the situation because it's acknowledging that sometimes we ask bad questions that you know are hard to interpret for a learner. And sometimes we ask really difficult off the wall questions that maybe we shouldn't be asking but it decompresses the situation so that the learner, I think, can think more clearly. Finally, tip 10, and this is on humility. And that's that you should recognize that you don't know much, but you have much to teach. And this is that sort of everyday phenomenon. That every time I'm on the wards, every day I go in, I learn a couple of new things 
if not more than that. And that's that, like, you know, we don't think, we don't know nearly as much as we like to think that we know, particularly in medicine, which is so hard to keep up on. So here you want to create a safe, nurturing learning environment, and that has much to do with your own humility. So you just want to be as humble as possible. And in that, you want to avoid gotcha questions. That's sort of the, oh my God, I can't believe you don't know that. Did they not teach you this in medical school? You're not trying to catch them at things they don't know. You're trying to identify things they don't know so you can go on to teach that to them or have them go home and look it up or stimulate curiosity around what you're asking about. So one of the things that I do in this situation is I talk about when I first learned what I just taught them. Because for them, they're thinking, well, you're just an encyclopedia of medicine, when in fact, none of us really are an encyclopedia of medicine. And even if I looked something up that morning before rounds, I like to tell them that that's what I did. That's how I know about this topic. I just reread a little bit of Cecil's or Harrison's or up-to-date this morning before rounds or looked up a new medication that just came out that's one of these biologics to treat cancer or rheumatoid arthritis that are impossible to pronounce sometimes and hard to keep up on. Don't hesitate to make fun of yourself as part of this humility aspect of artful questioning. Another thing I like to do is to acknowledge that I've seen a lot more patients and diseases than most of the learners I'm around, if probably all the learners that I'm around at this point. So I'll say something like, hey, don't feel bad that you didn't know that. You've seen this disease once and I've seen it 50 times. The first 25 times I saw it, I still couldn't get this concept straight. So just various examples of ways you can project humility and make the learning environment safer and your questions therefore more powerful, memorable, and stimulating in terms of teaching concepts and re reinforcing both old and new knowledge. So hopefully I'll be back soon with Dr. James Nixon for an interview about uh, what is and what isn't mistreatment, as well as to sort of retrieve some more suggestions for the artful questioning that we all strive to do in the medical education environment. Thank you everyone and have a great morning, afternoon, evening, night, whenever you're listening to this podcast. I'll see you soon. This is Jay Maskus doing Maisie Stars Fade Into You. I totally love this version of the song and I hope you enjoy it as I want to take a breath that's true I look to you and I see nothing I look to you to see the truth You live your life, you go in shadow
Strange. 